Hello and welcome to the Future of Australia podcast. Here I interview the entrepreneurs running the fastest growing businesses in Australia. These interviews will be around the themes of entrepreneurship, new ideas, business, innovation, capitalism and successful enterprise being the motor that will drive Australia forward. I will be telling the stories of the people who are making it possible and as they grow and strive further will become a bigger and bigger part of Australia's future. My name is Derek Stewart, your host and the founder of Future of Australia. Check us out at futureofaustralia.com to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, get exclusive content and ensure you never miss an episode. For questions or comments, email me at derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404-689-897. Welcome to episode 5 of the Future of Australia podcast. In this episode, I interview Scott O'Neill, the founder of Rethink Investing, a national investment property buyers agency based in Sydney. We discuss how the realisation that a highly paid job with long hours was never going to create financial and lifestyle freedom, which led him to get interested in property investment, racking up dozens of properties in his 20s. How a pivotal moment and magazine interview led to a flood of calls with people wanting him to buy properties for them. We chat about the growing popularity of buyer's agents as a new concept within Australia and how he builds a fantastic and committed team. Hear how they grew 170% last financial year, reaching nearly 1.9 million in turnover, making them one of the Fin Review fastest growing young businesses in Australia. If you are interested in property investment, learning by doing, and building a better life through property, if you want someone to source affordable, cash flow positive, investment grade, commercial and residential properties for you to buy, check out rethinkinvesting.com.au. That's R-E-T-H-I-N-K-I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N-G.com.au. Sounds good. Okay. So I'm here with uh, Scott O'Neill of uh, Rethink Investing, a property company based in Sydney focusing on buyer's agency services. So Scott, can you describe what you were doing before you started Rethink Investing? What did you study? Uh, What type of organisations did you work in? Sure. Um, I I grew up in Sydney, as you said, and uh, started as an engineer, so I studied Sydney Uni, um, thought it was the right thing to do. I, you know, I, I actually just saw they were paying graduates better money, <laughs> so that was kind of the main driver, just chasing the dollars at the time. And quickly after starting, I worked out it wasn't for me. Uh, it was, you know, we were working Saturdays, Sundays, Christmases. Like I was building railways, and that basically meant I was on the tracks when trains weren't, and that made me work different hours to all my friends and family and it just didn't sit right as well so I two years later I then quit moved into you know it's like a building material business so it was a bit more businessy which I did enjoy a lot more um, looking after sort of open cut mines and all that kind of stuff and yeah that, that was good fun but I think the one thing that bothered me with that workforce was I could work as hard as possible and still get paid compared to if I didn't do any work at all. Because it was just a flat salary. There was no 
incentive to, you know, build the business or do things differently. We were just literally just ticking boxes and, you know, the, the pay rises started getting a bit, um, as a percentage, a little bit lower across the board in big business. So I sort of felt like the big business model was a little bit broken and, you know, I did want to be a CEO back in the day. I, I was studying an MBA to do it and all that kind of stuff, but it just, um, yeah, it just died and the property kind of was my little escape on the side. That was my first dabble into sort of that entrepreneurial type stuff, creating money out of nothing. Um, I was buying properties, like I was a, I was a mad keen uh, traveller, so I loved um, going for extended periods of time, like I lived in Canada for a little while, I, you know, spent a lot of time in Europe, um, probably over a over a year, to be, um, over a couple of different holidays in Europe. And, um, yeah, basically that influenced the types of properties I bought. So I'd, I didn't want to buy a property like everyone else that had cost them 10, 20 grand a year just to hold, you know, negative geared. I wanted to buy properties that would give me 10 or 20 grand back after all costs, even with that debt. And that's hard to find. Uh, it's, look, it's things like, having multiple incomes on properties like house and granny flats. Commercial is the real key for me of late to build a passive income. But basically, long story short, I was 28 years old. Um, I had 19 properties at the time, about 150 grand passive income. So that passive income from the properties actually gave me confidence to basically quit my job, which I was on a good salary. Um, and so it was hard to not know that that was going to, well, to know that's actually going to be off the uh, table next month. Uh, but having that passive income gave me the confidence to basically step out. And um, yeah, basically uh, about six months after I quit, um, I just I was getting a lot of calls from people to, to help buy properties because I, I was in a magazine uh, a while ago and. You know, a few people reached out and I started helping them and quickly did I think, you know, this is taking a lot of time. Um, you know, I then got all my licenses and all that kind of stuff and basically started charging um, to help people buy the same types of properties I bought. That got me out of my workforce. And, uh, yeah, the, now we're sort of, you know, we've nearly bought a 1,000 properties all up since then for clients and their business is going good. Yeah, can, can you tell me a bit about your sort of your first property? So you're working and you're in your early twenties, and and how did you sort of buy the first property that you ever bought, the first investment, and what was that experience like? Yeah, so I started working quite young, uh, fifteen, sixteen. Uh, worked all the way up to twenty three. Twenty three is when I bought my first property. In that period, I did manage to save about fifty five, sixty thousand dollars. And that contributed to a, basically I took a 90% lend on a house in Sutherland, in the Sutherland Shire. Uh, that house was 480 grand, but then I had a, a granny flat on it as well. So the rent was basically about, I think it was a 700 at the time, 700 per week. So you can quickly work out with the debt on, you know, 400, call it 430 grand. Uh, you know, you're going to cover your cost plus maintenance. Like maintenance will even be covered, everything. And then now that same property rents for 1100 a week. So 
so the rents increase and the equation gets better and better the longer you hold. So I just basically try to find more properties like that um, because they still have capital growth, so you're still going to make good equity. But the difference from what, how I invested to most others is I just prioritise cash flow uh, because I did like that ability to not work. And a lot of people, like particularly accountants, are quite still fixated on claiming a loss you know, negatively geared, but I think it's a broken strategy. It worked in the 1950s in Sydney when the average income was four to five times. The, uh, you know, average house price, should I say, is four to five times the average income. But now it's about 14. So you can't go out and buy a house and negatively gear it now because the cash flow is so absolutely terrible that you're not going to be living comfortably. And I think that defeats the entire purpose of investing. Mm. And so you mentioned the the business, so you were sort of investing, which is I guess a, a sort of a form of business in itself, but then you started getting inquiries, a bit of press coverage. H- how did you get that first press coverage? Was it a friend of yours or, or you just uh, became known time, in my, the real estate? Yeah, my mortgage broker basically just uh, threw my stats at, at a magazine and then yeah, that, that, they basically called me up a few weeks later and had this interview and it was quite confronting to be honest because I, even, even when I had 19 properties, my parents thought I had like less than 10. So I wasn't, I didn't tell anyone what I was really doing. Mm. So this was the first kind of on show, you're in the media after that. And that, that was confronting because I am a private person in general and, um, that, that took a bit of use to getting used to, but I quickly worked out it was worth it because you get your name out there and people just start reaching out to you and that's exactly how I created the business. It was just that extra marketing through my story and that kind of propelled into a you know, a larger business. And did you get interesting reactions from sort of friends and family who who saw you in the magazine as well? Yeah, so it was mostly it was pretty positive. Like you get the the trolls on the internet go, "Oh, you're the reason that Sydney's unaffordable." Or mm. <laughs> people like you shouldn't own more than one property. Like you, I've got all of those. Um, so it's always been um, there's two types of people: the ones that want to do what you're doing, and the others that want to tell you why it's just you know you're screwed, why it's not going to work. And I, I enjoy the, the haters, to be honest, because it just gives you a bit more passion to prove them wrong and I've been doing that my entire life and they'll, they'll keep telling me oh you shouldn't be buying more or the property market's not a good time but you know they're, I know they're wrong because it's worked for me. Yeah and so what was that transition like because you I imagine operating fairly independently with a, a sort of a network of suppliers like sort of mortgage brokers and real estate agents and contractors but then you actually started taking on clients of your own. Yeah. Um, what was that first sort of 12 months where you actually you decided you wanted to do a business, you're actually billing clients for your buyer's agent services? What was that yeah. initial year like? So it started pretty slow, to be honest. Like we, oh, I think I emailed maybe 300 different mortgage brokers with, I, I used to have these like property deals of the week type of thing to, to see if, any of their clients like the look of them. So it was very manual, very like cold calling. Um, yeah, pretty uh, uninspiring to be honest, but 
basically, um, it was word of mouth that really started getting it going. So once I bought a property with someone, they would be happy with the result. And then their friend would quickly go, you know what, I want to do that. You know, I want to buy a house for 300 grand when in Sydney it's, you know, a million dollars, the equivalent. And that word of mouth is probably about 60% of our business. Um, and then Facebook was actually really good for us and a few of the other online marketing channels. And that just basically pushes us a very large amount of leads every week. And, you know, most people are pretty good to work with, to be honest. They're, they, they're open to, you know, what, what this new, newish type industry does. And they're, they're just seeking help from a professional that has done what they want. And that's, um, kind of how our business keeps moving forward. Okay, and are your clients sort of mainly young professionals, sort of, are they older couples, is it the whole mix? Um, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty big mix, um, I'd say probably 25 to 50 is our spread, so white, um, white collar professionals are the majority, so I've got more banking clients than, than any other, um, a lot of accountants as well, so I think that relates. Um, even the guys that work with me, like I've got a, a guy who's a mechanical engineer, 99.9 UAI, knows the numbers perfectly. And that relates to, well, that kind of helps attract similar types of clients, the ones that like the numbers. they We don't oversell anything. How we, how we sell a property is just show you the numbers. And if you like it, you like it. If you don't, we move on to the next property. And that... Uh, I think that non-pressure tactic works quite well, and I think this industry, like, not to not to uh, be too harsh on it, it's full of a lot of poor operators, um, people that are proud the fact that they're high school dropouts, and you know they've got no idea about understanding things like that. But that I don't know why you'd want to see an advisor that's not intelligent. It sounds a bit horrible, but. There's, um, yeah, there's a lot of that out there and you can see very clearly what, um, what some competitors do. They, they overstate things and they, uh, I think that could get them into trouble. So we, we just basically state it as a fact, understated if anything. Um, so prices and all that kind of stuff and yeah, let, make, let people make their own decisions on that. And that's, um, that's probably our kind of, sales technique, I guess, that's a little bit different from others. Yeah, and it's obviously working well for you, and um, you're one of the fastest growing young businesses in Australia, growing 170% last financial year and getting up to $2 million in annual turnover. So was there something additional that you did that drove this growth or something new? Um, I, I work with good people, to be honest, so I've got... I've got buyers, agents that work for me and they're very autonomous but they kind of run their own show and they're, uh, they're a very big part of why we're growing because I've only got a certain amount of hours in the day so I can sell a certain amount per week um, but using those guys and uh, I, haven't, I haven't put too many guys out there as well. Like There is a point where you can just put people on for the sake of putting people on um, which... You know, I get probably once a week someone asking for a job because the property industry is kind of fun. A lot of people, either, you know, you love it or you hate it. So the ones that love it want to work in there. But, um, yeah, it, it's that's sort of um, how it all operates, basically. 
So was that part of the scaling up, starting to have sort of sub-agents below you that extended your reach more nationally? Was that a big driver of the growth? Yeah. So I, I generate all the leads for my guys. So that a lot of, uh, I think one thing we did differently as well, people would put staff on with the hope that the staff would generate leads. And that's perfect in an ideal world, but it just doesn't happen. People... Unless they've got their own resources that are vast and they've been in the industry for a long time, they're probably not going to be able to deliver you, you know, more than one good lead a week. Um, so my business feeds with uh, my guys with leads and they're good enough to basically um, talk to the clients at the right level, present the right properties and, you know, if, we've, if our sort of uh, message is quite clear and, and the basically the numbers on the property are good, then people are going to want the product. Yeah, and, and so what about some of the challenges? When, when you're growing, obviously adding sub-agents and other staff, there's sort of communication things or other just growing pains. What were some of the challenges growing that quickly? Uh, we haven't had too many. Like probably when I started getting really busy, I remember I, there was one month I... Like, I was just by myself. Uh, didn't, so I was doing all the admin, all the invoices, and I was involved in, it was just, it was 29 sales for that month. So you can imagine, like, the stress of going through a settlement on a property. It, you know, it's, it's high stakes stuff. So I was, imagine doing that every single day of the week, and mm. then you've got to do all the invoices, you've got to do all your calls, all the talking to real estate agents is a very big part of my job. It's not my favorite part. Because uh, they just talk crap all day. So, uh, my job is to sift through all that, and um, yeah, that takes a lot of time. So that that was a real stress point. I remember thinking, I'm going to have great hair by the end of this week if if this keeps going. Like it wasn't fun. And then a, a guy that I used to work with was keen to get started, so he he bought a, you know I, I think it was six or seven or eight properties at the time. So he, he was an active, experienced investor and. He was, had the same kind of mindset as me. Like, we're not salesy type people. We'll just, you know, present facts. And, you know, so it, it linked up well. And so he was the first person that um, allowed us to, you know, have a business with more than one person, not a sole trader. And then I actually got my wife involved. So she now does all the operations of the business. So all the invoices, CRM management, mm-hmm. um, you know, all the marketing as well, a lot of that. So she's extremely involved in it. And, yeah, since then we've just got some other buyers, agents who are doing really well. And, yeah, it's the same kind of message every time. Yeah, because otherwise it's an easy trap, isn't it? You leave the high-stress job to get freedom and then you sort of you get the freedom, but then it's easy to get trapped back even in your own business sort of working yeah. long hours and moving away from where you want to be when that's the whole reason you started the thing. And that's one thing I've always held very close to, um, to my heart, trying to keep that work-life balance. So, you now there's a few reasons for that. Like, one, like my wife lost her mother a few years ago, so, you know, we made a bit of a path that life's short, you know, live it. So we actually do travel three to six months overseas every year. Uh, we did it last year, we did it the year before, we're doing it this year. So I'm actually not in the office chair uh, for a very large portion of the of the year. I do do online emails and, 
you know, a couple of phone calls here and there, but basically I'm working at 20% and the business still runs because the staff I've got are, are good enough. They're, they're very, very skilled operators and they don't really need me, to be honest. I've just got to provide them leads, otherwise I don't hold my end of the bargain up. And, yeah, that, that's sort of how it all operates. Yeah, and have you ever thought of making it almost like a franchise, like a buyer's agent sort of franchise where you provide the brand and the leads and then people sort of buy into it, that sort of thing? Yeah, I, I did, um, but I, I, I'm a massive believer that you can't scale a buyer's agency and there's a couple of reasons. One, you know, developing enough leads is going to be a very costly exercise, but more importantly, there's only a certain amount of, good properties available. We're not selling off the plan townhouses or, you know, units, things that are mass-produced. We're, we're finding individual existing houses which have a lot of value. So we've got a, a network um, of actually hundreds of agents that have known us over the years as, you know, a bit of a quick sales source. So they, the people come to us and sell properties without agents as well just to skip commission. The uh, the only negative side for them is we don't pay much for it. We'll, we honestly pay you know, between 5 to 10% below market value every time. Otherwise, we don't look at it. So for our business to maintain its quality, you, you know, we might be able to find 30 or 40 of these a month, uh, which sounds a lot, but we've, uh, you know, we've, got, we've been doing this for a while and we know all the agents come to us now. So it does, they do come in, we get sent you know, probably 500 properties a month and most of them are rubbish, but the good ones will sift out. And you can't scale a business beyond too much. Well, you know, I definitely think we can grow more, but uh, I just never want to lose quality because if you lose quality, then, the you know, word of mouth will get out that what you're buying is not the best in the industry and you're done after that. Yeah, that's a very good point. Sort of, can you speak a bit about sort of buyers' agent services in general? My understanding is it's it's a long-established concept in places like the US, but in Australia, it's a sort of young industry, or it's become more popular lately. Is is that right? Or what's your sort of view on the buyers' yeah. agent service? Is it sort of Australian in in Australia? So it's definitely new. Like in the US, like you said, it, it's common. I think sixty to seventy percent of people use buyer's agent to buy a house. There, it'd be less than one in ten in Australia, definitely. So it's a new industry, and Australia's had this bit of a do-it-yourself attitude with property, which there's nothing wrong with that. That was back in the day when you could buy in your own backyard. And you know, let's say you you're growing up in Melbourne or Sydney, where house prices are ridiculous prices. How does a first homeowner get into that market? The only real way is they buy probably an apartment, you know, half a million dollar apartment. It might only be a one bedroom. That's not going to give you the capital growth to actually become a professional investor. So people are starting to warm up uh, in much larger numbers about using a professional who knows other markets. You know, the, we know, we look at across Australia and every single state, but you know, thousands of hours later, we'll, we'll home in on, you know, our favourite suburbs, our favourite streets, make sure it's not next to a dodgy park or a flood zone. And There's just thousands of little things you need to get right so you don't go wrong. 
and we've got a very big checklist that you know we fill out to make sure you know we check for easements we check for you know like even things like is it on the low side of the road are there overhead power lines that are large above it is there you know there's all sorts of things you need to unapproved structures is another one um so these things are a first homeowner i i would be very confident to say they'll miss a few of these steps and that can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars so using us you kind of you're all but guaranteeing yourself a, a safe passage into property, which should do very well. And we haven't had a bad experience to date, to be honest. And, um, you know, our worst experience with a property is maybe it's taken us one took two months to rent, but it was a funny setup type house. But most properties rent within a couple of weeks, uh, one to two weeks. And, um, yeah, after that, you just literally sit on the property and some people renovate and we help with all that. Some people want to subdivide and develop. We can help with that as well. Um, so it's a very hands-on approach. And, yeah, the, the end result is you buy a property at the right price and it will have no major detractors on it. And that will help you get capital growth long-term. Yes. Yeah, so it sounds like it's, a, a like you said, people looking beyond their own backyard Um and that's why the buyer's agent, like yourself, with the national reach is, is helpful. Are there anything else you think that might have driven this sort of increasing popularity in using buyer's agents? I think affordability of, of the major markets is the key. That's the biggest thing. So people, uh, it's actually much cheaper to rent um, in, in many parts of Sydney. Like I'm talking a third of the, the mortgage costs in some cases. So Financially, it, it makes sense to rent in Sydney at the moment, not buy. And you know, on the flip side, you don't want to be not in the property market. You don't. You have to invest in some way in this economy. If you if you rely on a salary and then save your money, you're screwed. You're not going to re- retire. You know, unless you're on a massive doctor's salary or something like that, you can. Uh, but the majority of people, average income in Sydney, I believe, is about ninety one thousand. You know, you're not going to get too far with that um, unless you invest. So just turning that $1 into 2 in the background, and property is a very good way of doing that. Property has doubled every 12 years roughly in Australia since you know 150 years later, and that includes regional areas. And so if you buy in a good area, you, you can double your house price in 7 to 10 years. And obviously if you bought a half a million dollar house, you now it's got a million dollar house, it's big money. And if you multiply that effect, hopefully you've got three or four or five of these things, you can quickly see how it will spiral into actually retirement. Yeah, and you mentioned a little bit earlier about sort of the real estate investment industry, so to speak, and a bit of the stigma and some of the other operators in the industry. Did you ever consider doing like a real estate training type business or are they some of those ones that you feel are causing the issues in the industry? Oh, oh just the, the training. So there's a few of the, the education. Look, there's, there's definitely good people in the industry. Oh, there's, there's just half that aren't, basically. Mm. So there's many businesses I respect and, and look at as a, you know, they're good operators, but it, it's just the ones that are... They overstate things and like, like they just, they bullcrap a lot. And that is a real estate thing. It always has been. Like, I think real estate agents are the least trusted industry or one of them. 
estate agent. So, yeah, it, it's uh, look, I haven't really thought about doing any of that education stuff. I, I feel like we can provide a better service by actually delivering an actual property to a client and then they learn through the process. So they'll, they'll be experts on their property by the time they've settled on it. A lot of these education classes, you sit in a room, pay five grand, they tell you, you know, you've got to add value, you've got to subdivide, you've got to renovate, all that kind of stuff. It sounds great and it's true on paper, but how do you actually find that property? You need contacts. If you don't have a good contact, you know, someone like me is going to get a call from an agent to say, I've got a quick sale, it's a distress sale. That's not going to go to the market. That'll, in fact, 55% of our properties in 2017 were never on the market. So it's your contact, like none of this is rocket science. It's just having good contacts that send you properties when they're in a bit of a stressed state and then you pick them up at a cheap price. And yeah, that that's kind of, um, I think there's much more value in actually delivering someone a, an actual property compared to just telling them how to do things because, you know, you're still going to need to do it at the end of the day. Yeah, I think that's an interesting sort of business concept as well. In an industry, perhaps it's focused more on educating people, having a sort of done-for-you solution is almost a gap in the market, perhaps, that people were missing and they don't have the time and, and like you said, have to do it anyway. So that's yeah. what sort of has obviously resonated with, uh, with your clients. Definitely. And look, I think it is a... Um I think it is a growth industry. It's just, um, yeah, you've just got to deliver them the right property and then you know, the rest is history, to be honest. I'll, I'll want to buy another one. Like our average client does buy more than one property a year. Uh, I'd say about two on average at the moment. We've got some guys up to their seventh and eighth and ninth properties. So there's guys that just keep coming back. And once they see the strategy work, it's, it is addictive. You want to go again. Like I've got 28 properties currently and I'd love to own more because it, like, I know it works. It, you know, you just literally sit in a market for 20 years and you're going to do very good. So the more assets value you control, the more money you're going to make. And it, it's, it's basically free money in a way. Like you're just storing it away for savings for a rainy day and then dividends are paid later. Mm. So stepping back a bit um, outside of the real estate industry, what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? Like, what do you think we're doing well? What could we do better at? Uh, I think, it, well, obviously, there's massive amounts of new businesses starting, which is, I think, in response to poor wage growth in big business and just the uh, way, you know, employees are treated in general a little bit, um, you know, harsher. And, like, things like, you know, universities. So, that like, I'll use teachers as an example. It's a cheap degree to produce. So, they mass produce teachers and they create an oversupply of teachers and basically, like, you know, it could take, you know, six, 12 months to find a job as a teacher. So, the old kind of way of just going to uni and you're going to get a good job and your life's going to work out is, is a little bit more broken now. Things are way too expensive. Salaries are not high enough. And... Small business is a way of kind of creating another angle. And, you know, I've never really considered myself an entrepreneur. I just, I'm a property guy and it just kind of linked up into a business. But there's, uh, I think, 
I think that'll be, yeah, there'll be just lots of new startups coming through. Um, many are going to be kind of a little bit too late in the piece to pick up decent market share. Uh, and there'll be some good new ones. I've, I've seen a few of our oldest uh, competitors, the ones that I used to look up to, have completely fallen away. So I, I, I've seen businesses that are, you know, they've sold out and they've done things they shouldn't have. And, you know, that's deteriorated their results. But, you know, I, I think if, um, yeah, good operators will do well in the next 10 years for sure. Mm. And, and so if someone was, say, they're 20 years old and they're at university doing, like I said, what everyone sort of tells you to do, getting the degree, um, looking back with what you know now, what would you tell that 20-year-old maybe is a little bit interested in investing or business or something other than uh, being a salaried employee their whole life? What advice would you sort of give them? Yeah, look, I'm actually, like, I've been to uni twice and, you know, it sounds a bit hypocritical, but I, I really think, I think the system is broken. Like, I'll give an example. But when I was an engineer, my thesis was on how little the engineering degree prepared you for the real workforce. And, you know, that went kind of quite well, but some of the bad teachers didn't like that. But I, I had a bit of an anti-establishment thing against education because the reason is they teach you stuff, particularly engineering. They, don't, they, they never go out and tell you how to talk to people, manage, you know, rough situations uh it's literally just here's some numbers let's calculate it you're just a trained parrot and being a trained parrot is great if you're in a kind of a manufacturing role where you're on on an assembly line and you've got to follow a process to a T. but if you want to create a business and and do well you you know it's not just about following process and that's what this current education system teaches how to uh, follow process and I think it's a it's a model that will not work as well, and it's proven because you know there's lots of salaries for uh, graduates that are dropping because there's just so many graduates. There's not enough jobs for them. You know, lawyers is a good example. Like I don't know what they get paid now, but I remember it was only about forty forty five grand for a graduate. And imagine you've copped a, a thirty forty thousand dollar hex bill on top, and then you're starting a very low salary and you know, when it grows, you're going to have to start paying hex back. And, you know, on top of that, house prices of you know, 10, 20, oh, sorry, 14 times the average income in Sydney, it's kind of impossible to get ahead. So, yeah, I think, um, I think the, uh, yeah, entrepreneur is the way for sure. Yeah, and what about now? So now you're employing people, you're an employer, you're creating jobs. Do you find a big gap, or I imagine you might you might not be hiring a lot of young, fresh graduates, but that sort of learning curve between getting them sort of ready to be productive in your business versus um, maybe where they've come from? Uh, we're pretty lucky because basically the, the people that work in Rethink Investing are actually investors, so they've kind of already, they know what's going on already. So it's literally just, are they good with talking to people? You know, basically, you know, that they're the angle. So I think it's, um, yeah, not a not a too big of a challenge, to be honest, at, at the moment. Yeah, they're already sort of, I guess, converted or already aligned on the mindset uh, that yeah. you already have. So it's you're not really encountering any issues there. 
Exactly. So I literally just find people that have the same investment type uh, viewpoints as I I do. So if I had someone that wanted to only buy negatively geared properties in Melbourne or Sydney, that wouldn't fit because it doesn't fit the model we produce. We're very strictly got to have properties with good cash flow and they've got to be in good capital growth areas. And that resonates with most investors, to be honest. But, um, you know, you just got to find the ones that probably lived it a bit more themselves they've done it uh, hopefully they own you know six or more properties so they're in that top one percent and then people will listen and yeah i think it, it's again it's not easy to scale and i don't think you'd want to because the supply of good properties is going to be your critical path uh, but yeah i think um i think it all works out pretty well yeah, and that sort of feeds into my next question and my final question, which is sort of what does the next five or ten years look like for Rethink Investing? Um, so we, we in 2017, I believe we sold more properties than any other person in the industry. Um, so we're, we're a high turnover business, but we're, because of that high turnover, we get more and more good properties sent to us because we meet new agents. They see what we do. We're a quick, quick turnaround on contracts and that. So the supply of good properties is ever increasing. So it's just, I think we're just going to grow with that. Um, that will be the determiner of where we go. I don't, we don't need 20 staff. Um, there's a lot of businesses that do lower turnovers than us that have twice our staff. But I'd rather pay my guys very good incomes. Um, you know, they're, they're on commission type roles and, they can do very well, and if they've got a larger share of the pie, then you're going to have better people work for you as well. Like, oh, I'm not a big believer of just being cheap with salaries because people will leave to chase another higher-paying job, and turnover is a very costly thing. You know, you've got to mm. start again. You've got three or four months of basically a, an employee that's pretty useless at the start because they're learning, and that costs money. But if you keep good ones, they'll week in, week out, produce results for you. Yeah, and do you have any plans? So you mentioned you help her with development. Like, do you offer sort of property management services for your clients? Uh, so, so we've never got into that side. I, I think it's there's a lot of legwork, sort of not a huge payoff in that. But look, if you can do, you can do very well with property management. I'm more interested in things like uh, financing. So we've got a rethink financing business and that we're kind of specializing in investor loans so our broker is very good with commercial um, you know all that all the all the difficult type of things that you can't get a loan for our guys very strong with and that that's getting at that business growing really quick as well so it'd be nice to create that um, get that one up to speed even more and then yeah outside that'll be just growing racing investing and just you know, I don't. We might. We don't have any plans to put anyone on extra at the moment. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, I think it will come in time. Do you have any plans of international expansion, offering like a similar model in another country? Um, I did actually look into the US uh, in 2017. I spent a couple months over there as well, so I did learn the markets and. I quickly realised there's just, well, one, it's basically impossible to get a bank loan there. So 
you know, if you're buying a 200 grand property, you're going to be ready to spend 200,000 US plus cost. I'd rather put that 200 grand into a six or seven or eight hundred thousand dollar Australian property because you're controlling a higher capital value. So Australia is a young, you know, dynamic country. There's population. Well, I think we're the highest population growth out of any of the developed countries currently. I may be wrong, but we're up there, and I think that's that's good for property. If people are moving here, you know, they're not building any extra land. You just buy land, and it'll become in higher demand, and demand will push price up. And uh, in the US, for instance, it's too much legwork to be honest. Like, you, if you do buy a property there, you're probably going to want to buy something like you know under a hundred grand, and that's going to take you to a very small or, or poor demographic type town, um, Detroit as an example. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of unemployment. The tenants there are not high quality. Uh, the rental managers there are very poor as well. They're very they're very uh, old school. Like you've got to use checks to change money around uh, instead of bank transfers. So there's things like that where you need someone on the ground. Yeah, I, I'd love to go international, but I just don't don't see the point of it as you can do whatever you need to with property in Australia and you can make good money here there's we're blessed to have different markets as well like so Sydney's falling at the moment in price but others are growing like Tasmania for example grew obviously pulled 15% in the last 12 months which is massive mm. that's more than Sydney so there's always a market if you if you're on the ground and you see it you know day in day out you're going to pick these markets before they go and you start buying in there, and then as they grow, they, they might, you know, let's use Hobart as an example, it might grow really quick for three years, and you might make 50 60% capital growth in that time. But then it might taper off. But by then, you've already made your money. You're keeping a good cash flow on top of its key, so you don't have to think about selling, because you, why would you sell an income uh, if, if it's producing one? And... Yeah, and then you move on to the next market, and Australia's just kind of blessed like that, that we can, there's always somewhere there where we can make money. Yeah, so, so just to finish, do, do you have any final thoughts or, or comments or anything else maybe we didn't cover which you'd like to add? Uh, no, not really. I, yeah, I think, uh, I think we covered it pretty well, and thank you for having me as well. Yeah, thanks a lot, Scott, for coming on. No worries at all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about it who you think may enjoy the content and get something useful out of it. Feedback, comments, likes or dislikes, you can reach me by emailing Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404 689 897. Thank you.